So, there it is. <laughs> if you didn't grab a packet from the back where the sign on the table said, please take one, now would be a great time to grab a packet from the back from the table with the sign that says, please take one. <laughs> this is my attempt at being helpful. Um, just, I thought maybe it would be good to have a reference in your hands to look at as we go through this. So I'm going to continue today on kind of the same path we were on last week. We're just going to continue that forward. So um, we're going to still be talking about information from the Bible Project's uh, intro to the Hebrew Bible class. So all these charts and things that are in your little handout um, are resources from them. And we're going to continue, I'm going to continue to kind of expound upon what we talked about last week with the Old Testament. So and you'll be happy to know that I found the laser. Yeah, it only took me a week. So let's do a little refresh on the Tanakh ordering. So remember, the Tanakh is all the same books as our Old Testament, but it is just in a different order. And this is how people in Jesus' time, the Jews, the Hebrews, would have, um, they would have seen or encountered their scriptures in this order in this way. So, the first five books are the Torah, or the law, and those are the same as our Pentateuch. And then the second section of scrolls is called the Nevi'im, or the prophets. Remember, there are some books in here that uh, we consider these history, and in the Tanakh ordering, these are categorized under the prophets. And the third category in the Tanakh is the Ketuvim, or the writings. And remember, this is a mixture of things that we consider poetry, history, and even some things that we consider prophetic here with Daniel. So all the same books, just a different order. And you can refer back to this chart as we go on and uh, keep it handy. It might help if uh, you look back at it. So today, instead of talking and teaching and hoping that you follow me to a conclusion, I thought that it might be helpful to just lay out the conclusion first and um, hope that that's kind of where we end up. So, this is today's premise. Uh, point one. The Old Testament is a unified story pointing forward and building anticipation for an anointed one that is going to bring restoration. All right? That's part of what we're going to see today as we talk. Point two. The books themselves, the scrolls themselves, provide the context for their arrangement in the Tanakh. So there are design elements that are woven into the scrolls themselves that provide clues on how they should be arranged. Thus, the literary design of the books and the three-part arrangement found in the Tanakh uniquely reminds us of the entire collection's theme, the overall essence, which is the prophet to come. So that's where we're going to end up today, I hope. All right. Let me show you how we're going to do this. So this is the second graph that is on your front page. Um, the way that we are going to accomplish the premise is to look at the seams of the Tanakh. Remember the Tanakh is divided into th the three collections. So the seams would be between them. The first seam we find here at the end of Deuteronomy in the beginning of Joshua. And we'll look at that first. The second seam you find here at the end of Malachi, in the beginning of Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. 
Those are the two themes of the Tanakh collection, and those are going to give us the essence of what the overall collection is about. When we're finished with that, we will do some comparison. If you see a um, connection here between right here to Malachi and from Joshua here to Psalms, we'll do a side-by-side of those and look at how that reinforces the points. So that's what we're going to do. We will start at the beginning with Deuteronomy 34, which is also in your packet on the back of your first page. Lots of scripture happening here. So just to lay out the beginning, let you know where we're at. Israel has wandered in the desert for 40 years at this point. The Exodus generation has all died. They're all gone, except for the ones that the Lord said weren't going to be gone. (laughs) And um, Moses is looking over the land. The Lord is giving him the lay of the land, but remember, Moses is not going to enter into the land. God told him to speak to the rock, to bring forth the water. Instead, out of his frustration with the people, he struck it. So now he is not going to enter into the promised land. What we're seeing here is the last moments of Moses. And also, we're seeing the end of a plot line that has been going since Genesis 12, which is where the Lord told Abraham he promised the land to his descendants. And so we've got a lot of things that are coming right to this point, right to this intense conclusion as we end the Torah here. So let's just read through it. Deuteronomy 34, 4 through 12. And the Lord said to him, This is the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, as the Lord had said. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, facing Bet Peor, and no one to this day knows the location of his grave. Moses was 120 years old, When he died, yet his eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not diminished. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days, until the time of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with a spirit of wisdom, because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him, and they did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, no prophet who did all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent Moses to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his officials and all his land, and no prophet who performed all the mighty acts of power and awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So what do we want to take a closer look at here? You'll notice up here in verse 4, there's a change between verse 4 and verse 5. As you read through verse 4, it's in the first person. It's like you're there. You're present in the situation. But there's a change that takes place in verse 5. It moves from it moves to a third-person perspective, and it also moves to past tense. So the narrator in verse 5 is clearly removed from the situation, and he's standing and looking back. He's, in the, he's moved on, and this event with Moses is in the past. So that's important, important to point out because Moses is um, credited as being a really prolific writer of um, the Torah. But there's also other contributors. There's unnamed contributors and editors because the Torah took shape over time. It didn't just 
drop out of the sky and this is the way it is. Um, it grew over time and took the shape that we know today over time. There was different people that contributed to it and we're seeing the voice of one of those people right here. So we're in the past tense. Then we move into seven and through nine where we just see an account of what happened. We see the death of Moses and the commissioning of Joshua. So now that Moses is gone, this is a good time to remind you of something really, really very important that he said in Deuteronomy 18, 15. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. (laughs) This is really important because you and I know who he's talking about, right? So the Israelites have been told to look for this prophet that is like Moses. They've been told, you have to listen to him. Now Moses is a really big deal to these people. I mean, he's led them this far. I mean, he is just a towering figure. We even consider him that. So if you think about what people like Simeon, remember Simeon, how we talked about him last time and how he read his Old Testament, how he read his Tanakh? Moses is this towering figure in the narrative he's obviously really going to stand out to um, the people of Israel. So we see there's going to be a prophet like Moses. Then looking at verse 10, let's look at that. The narrator, since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. He's still in the future. He's still looking back. Now, judging from that verse, how far in the future, how far removed do you think the narrator is? It sounds to me like he's pretty far removed because he's using language like since that time, there's been no prophet like Moses. We don't know exactly how far down the line he is, but it's long enough that we kind of get this communication through the words used that, hey, it's been a while since we had a prophet like Moses. We could kind of use that right now. (laughs) So then if we're looking for a prophet like Moses, what does he look like? Well, thankfully, the narrative goes right on to show us exactly what he looks like. It says, whom the Lord knew face to face. No prophet who did all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent Moses to do. And no prophet who performed all the mighty acts of power and awesome deeds that Moses did. See, it's just going right down through and showing you this is what the prophet to come is going to look like because he's going to be like Moses. We find this right here. And that's how the Torah ends. This is the end of the first collection. So think about this like you had just finished a novel. You have been through it if you've just read all of these stories and you're here and you're like, what's the sequel? Like, I want to read the next book because you've seen God's creation and the original relationship that he had with humans. You see the tragedy of rebellion in the heavens and on the earth, the wiping out of most of humanity in a flood, only to have them come back and still be disobedient and try to build a tower to heaven. It's crazy. Um, You've seen the promises to Abraham and the story of his family, slavery, deliverance through power, only to be followed by absolutely crushing failure in the wilderness. You've seen Mount Sinai smoking on fire, the voice of the Lord, just intense things. You've seen the rise and the fall of so many leaders of the Israel people. And all of it is still unresolved. 
It's like, we still don't know. How is God, the creator, going to be reconciled back to his creation? That plot line is just still hanging. And you can just hear, with all that unresolved, the hope and the longing tone that we find here at the end of the Torah, waiting for the prophet like Moses. As this narrator looks back and says, we could really use a prophet like Moses at this point. And it's almost like at the end of this first collection, the narrator is stepping out of the narrative and looking at you, the reader, and saying, hey, if you want to know what all of this is about, what all of this means, here's a clue. Keep watching. Keep waiting. Because someone is coming. Someone is coming. Your hope, that hope you feel, is going to be fulfilled. That longing is going to be fulfilled. And think of the anticipation of Simeon when he was led by the Spirit into the temple. I mean, he was so anticipating his Messiah that the Lord was like, all right, all right, I get that you really want to see him. I'll let you be alive. You know, you're not going to die before you see his face. That's the kind of anticipation that this sort of narrative, in conjunction with the Spirit of God, brings about in God's people. I just, that's just incredible. So this is the first part of the first seam. And then we'll move on to the other half of this seam which we just turned the page. So Joshua 1. Now after the death of his servant Moses, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, you and all these people, and cross over the Jordan into the land that I am giving to the children of Israel. I have given you every place where the sole of your foot will tread, just as I promised to Moses. Your territory shall extend from the wilderness and Lebanon to the great river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and west as far as the great sea. No one shall stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give these people the inheritance of the land that I swore to their fathers I would give them. Above all, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to observe all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law must not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, for then you will prosper and succeed in all you do. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So clearly we can see here, how many times is Moses mentioned as God is talking to Joshua, as God is urging Joshua on to go do what he's supposed to do? It's a lot. So what's happening here is there's a clear handing off, a clear passing on of the Moses mantle, of the Moses mission. It's going forward. And you could kind of start to think here, Joshua looks a lot like Moses. The people obey him. Um, he's courageous. He confronts the enemies of God. He's going to lead the people into the promised land. Could Joshua be the prophet like Moses? I mean, could he be the fulfillment of that? You could wonder that, but you got to remember. Remember, we looked at Deuteronomy 34 right before this, where the narrator mentions Joshua, and after he mentions Joshua, he says, still, there has been no prophet that has arisen like Moses. So while Joshua does look like Moses, he is not the prophet like Moses. 
<clears throat> so what is happening here is that silhouette that Simeon saw in his Hebrew scriptures is being built. It's being filled out. It's continuing to be developed here by Joshua and the kind of leader and the kind of person that he was and his devotion to God. And this silhouette can also be described as a help wanted ad, which is, I just, this is just a great illustration for me. It really drives the point home. So Israel's like, help wanted. We need a prophet, a prophet. He must know the Lord face to face. Remember, that's one of our requirements. He's got to be proficient in signs and wonders, and he has to be mighty in power. Something interesting here, this is Joshua's addition to the help wanted ad down here. So when Moses heard from the Lord, he was in the presence of the Lord. He went in the tabernacle, the Lord would speak to him there, or he went up on a mountain and the presence of the Lord would come and speak to him. But now Joshua is adding something that's really interesting. Joshua now has the Torah. He has the law of Moses. He's got the word of God. He has the scriptures. And um, this is his addition. He's, uh, this is really important because the Lord speaks to him through the scripture. And the spirit of the Lord still does that with us today. So these are so important. Joshua is told not to let the book of the law depart from his mouth. He's told that it will make him wise, prosperous, and successful. So we see the addition to our help wanted ad is that the prophet who's going to come, he's always careful to obey or observe the law of Moses. And he meditates on the Torah, on God's word, day and night. So Joshua is building all of this out for us. Now what happens after Joshua? What book is next, even in the Tanakh order? If you look down at your chart, you'll see that it's Judges, right? And what happens in Judges? Well, let's just look here at, the, at chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> After Joshua had dismissed the people, the Israelites went out to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. And the people served the Lord throughout the days of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance in the hill country of Ephraim. After that whole generation had also been gathered to their fathers, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. So if you know the plot line of Judges, you know that it is all about the descent of Israel into moral, just total disarray and chaos. It just falls apart. It's it's awful. So it's just a train crash. And um, there's the judges, and they're enough to, like, you know, be a thread to hang on to, but they're no Joshua. <laughs> they're no Moses. And, you know, at this point, we could really use a prophet like Moses. Hey, you remember that thing? That would be great if he could show up now, because we're just a wreck. And another aside that's really interesting at this point to point out is if you look at your chart, you'll notice that Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are all categorized as prophetic books in your Tanakh ordering, whereas we consider those books history because they are a recording of events. I like to look at them as prophetic, though, because they're more than just a recording of events. What they are is they're this pronouncement on what's happening in the land, um, and they give us this prophetic glimpse into Israel's descent into chaos, the descent that ultimately leads to their exile. And a really good example of this is King Omri in 2 Kings. Um, he was actually probably one of the 
richest kings in Israel. This guy had a lot going for him. He did a lot of stuff. He's actually um, detailed in the annals of Assyrian kings as well. You know, he was so well known. And um, but in Second Kings, he gets this small paragraph about his kingship by the writer that just says he was bad. <laughs> that basically just says this guy was bad. Oh, also he was Ahab's father, and Ahab was terrible. So this is our summary of Omri. And if you think of the people that were living under his time, there was probably a lot of people that were like, this is fantastic. Everything is going so well. Look at this great leadership that we have. But the writer is, of this scroll is writing from a prophetic standpoint. And he's like, Mm-mm, this is not going anywhere good. So it's just interesting to see that history piece also having this prophetic voice that is more than just a recording of what's happening. So that is our first seam. So we've looked at Deuteronomy 34 and the first chapter of Joshua. That's seam one. So now we're going to move on to seam two. If you look at your second graph there, you'll see that's between Malachi 4 and Psalms 1 and 2 at the joinery of the prophets and the writings in your Tanakh order. So let's look at Malachi 4. We're right here. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. The day is coming when I will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Not a root or branch will be left to them, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves from the stall. Then you will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him for all Israel at Horeb. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse." So we can see here in Malachi 4, there's a day coming where there's going to be a separation of the wicked and the righteous. They're going to be separated, divided, and for the righteous, there's going to be this incredibly huge joy, like nothing before. And for the wicked, there's going to be condemnation and destruction. That's an important thing to highlight. And also in light of the New Testament, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> of course, Simeon didn't know all of this, but we have fulfillment. So we can see, I don't want to minimize everything that's going on here. We've got a picture of Jesus here and the son of righteousness. We're talking about the day of Yahweh, the day of judgment. And down here, this Elijah the prophet is John the Baptist. So there's a lot going on, but in the interest of reading from the perspective of Simeon, in his time, there's just a couple of things I want to highlight. First of all, right here, again, we see this reminder, remember the law of my servant Moses. And Malachi, the writer here, goes so far as to call forth the Deuteronomy language. He's trying to really drive this home. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the ordinances, Deuteronomy language. I'm calling it back to your mind. Remember this. Another thing I want to highlight here is... The coming of this Elijah-like prophet, also a really big deal for these people. Remember, Elijah called the people to repent. 
He called the people to turn back from God, turn back to God. And um, this would have been something that people just carried in their hearts and minds. This would have called forth all kinds of different memories and cues for them. Oh, there's going to come a prophet that looks like this. Okay. And you can see here that he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. What does that mean? So the fathers here, those are the patriarchs. So if the patriarchs were to look on their children, their descendants of Israel, right here at this place where Malachi is writing, they wouldn't even know them. Their hearts would turn from them. They would be aghast at what they were seeing. And the hearts of the children, the descendants of the patriarchs here, their hearts certainly aren't turned toward their fathers because they have no devotion to God. They've turned away. So when this Elijah, remarkably like Elijah prophet, comes, he's going to reunite them. He's going to draw them back to the devotion that their fathers, the patriarchs, had for God. That's what that means there. So those are a couple things I want to highlight. We're looking for this person that's going to come and draw these people back to God in repentance. And we're remembering the Torah. Remember my servant Moses and his statutes and ordinances. All right. So this is the other half of the second theme. Psalms is divided into five sub-collections. The first sub-collection is Psalms 1 through 41. In this first sub-collection, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the only two consecutive psalms that do not have an editorial heading. Psalm 10 also does not have an editorial heading, but that is a rabbit hole, apparently, that I'm not going to go down because I don't know anything about it, but it's there, (laughs) just so you know if you go look. But Psalms 1 and 2 do not have a heading. A lot of psalms will say, a psalm of David or for the choir master on stringed instruments, things like that. Psalm 1 and 2 stand apart and that they do not have a heading and that they are at the beginning of this collection. So they're something special. They're set apart and you'll see how they're actually really, really cool and how they bring this all together. So far, just to lay the land out of what we've done so far, we're anticipating a Moses-Joshua-like figure who is coming to redeem God's covenant people before the day of Yahweh. Remember, the fearers of the name. He's coming to redeem those people before the day of the Lord. And he's going to be like Moses and Joshua were on their best days. The only difference is he is not going to fail and die. His story will end in victory. He will be the ultimate overcomer. In the meantime, this is what the fearers are the name of the name are to do is here. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or set foot on the path of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree. He's planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither and who prospers in all he does. Not so the wicked. For they are like chaff, driven off by the wind. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord guards the path of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we can see here in the first six verses, for those who are rooted in the word of God, there will be fruitfulness and there will be prosperity. 
and they will have their paths guarded by Yahweh himself. Continuing in Psalm, moving on to Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6, which is the first half of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains and cast away their cords. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord taunts them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So let's just take a look at this first half to begin with. Who are the nations and the peoples in rebellion against? Who are they raging against? They are raging against the Lord, Yahweh, and his anointed one. This word here, anointed one, if you remember from our session last week, that's the Greek word Christos, and that corresponds to the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah. So they're rebelling against Yahweh and his Messiah, his anointed one. Ooh, that doesn't sound good, right? Well, we'll see how that turns out for them. And you get a little picture into their attitude and their language here. I mean, does this not speak of utter rebellion? Let us break their chains and cast away their cords. We don't want anything to do with God. We are our own kings. I mean, that's just an excellent picture of the attitude of rebellion that's going on here. What's Yahweh's response? He laughs, right? He laughs. It says that he laughs and he taunts them. He rebukes them and he terrifies them in his fury. And this is his solution to the rebellion of the nations. He says, I, I have installed my king, my king on Zion upon my holy mountain. And he is going to rule over all of you. And this is my solution to address the rebellion of the nations that's going on here. That's so cool. So we see Yahweh talking here. I've installed my king. He's talking about his anointed one. And then as we move on in Psalm 2, we get to hear from the anointed one. This is cool. He says, I will proclaim the decree spoken to me by Yahweh, by God. This is the anointed one speaking up saying, hey, Yahweh told me this. You want to hear what he said to me? He said, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me. And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Ooh. So this is really interesting because up to this point, we've talked a lot about land. We've talked a lot about promises and inheritance. And a lot of it has been in the context of the promised land of Israel, of the inheritance of the land for the tribes of Israel. But right here, we're seeing words like nations and ends of the earth. I'll make those the possession of the anointed one. So what this says to me, apparently, is that we've zoomed way out. And that the story of the promised land and Israel is a smaller part of this all-encompassing storyline that involves, uh, it draws in all of creation, all of the nations, all of the earth, and that the anointed one that we're looking for, he's going to rule all of it. It's not just going to be Israel, but it's the entire earth. Like, he's going to redeem all of it, and he's coming. I mean, it's just, he's drawing it all in. I just think that's so cool how we see that right here. All right, so then in verse 10, we're switching back to the voice of the narrator, 
Therefore, be wise, O kings, be admonished, O judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in your rebellion when his wrath ignites in an instant. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. <laughs> so the narrator saying, therefore, hey, because there's nothing you can do. God's installed his king. Therefore, you better be wise. Because if need be, he's going to break you with an iron scepter and shatter you like pottery. So serve him with fear, lest he be angry and you perish in a rebellion. So there is retribution coming. There is judgment coming for this rebellion. But I just think it's so amazing that at the end of this psalm, right here at the seam of the Tanakh, we find these words. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is speaking to those who are the fearers of the name. Blessed are you who trust. Who trust in who? Yahweh's anointed one. In him. Put your trust in him. Take refuge in him. And you're going to be blessed. Right here at the end. So it just seems to me like this is what the Hebrew Bible is about. Like, this is what our Old Testament is about. And it's remarkably similar to how Jesus described it back in Luke 24. If you remember last Sunday, we talked about Luke 24 and 2 Timothy 3, about how Paul talks about his Old Testament scriptures. And just as a refresher, I'll read that to you. And this is Jesus in Luke 24, verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. All nations, repentance and forgiveness. And uh, in Second Timothy 3, Paul says, he describes them as the holy scriptures, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. How many times have we looked at the law of my servant Moses and all the different things that it'll do for you? It's going to make you wise. It's going to make you prosper. It's going to make your way prosper, prosperous. You're going to have success. So it all kind of comes together. This is how they saw their Old Testament scriptures. This is what they thought that they were about. Now we'll look at some side-by-sides just to kind of drive the point home. This, what we're going to do here is this part where we connect Deuteronomy 34 to Malachi 4 and Joshua 1 to Psalms 1 and 2. <clears throat> so, Look at the side-by-side here. In Deuteronomy 34, this is where we get the description of the prophet like Moses, who is to come. And then we move on. We're looking for him. Then we move on to Malachi 4. Hey, remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember the Torah. No, really remember it. Meditate on it day and night. It's going to make you wise to salvation through faith. And it's if that was not enough, I'm going to send you this prophet. He's going to look a lot like Elijah. He's going to call you to repent before the day of judgment, before I separate the righteous and the wicked. And he, for those who receive his message, will have their hearts united in devotion to God. We'll remember our devotion to God and turn back to him. And then the next one, next, our next connection we'll look at, And this is almost like it's copy and paste. I've highlighted here the similarities in the language. And repetitive language is one of the ways, one of the patterns in um, narrative and in poetry that is used to unite two things that might be a distance from each other to really drive a point home. To say, hey, this is what's important. 
So we see here, <clears throat> be careful to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. No, really. Meditate on it day and night. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left. Yahweh himself will guard your path so that you'll have success wherever you go. You'll prosper in all that you do. You'll have your way be prosperous and you will have success. Isn't that cool? These two things are so far apart, but it's almost copy and paste. It's like it's saying, hello, this is what it's all about. Do this. It just is amazing to me, the construction, how the sophistication of writing that is happening here, that we're seeing this so powerfully driven home in the repetition between these two things here. So that's basically what I've got for today. And the Old Testament is just incredible to me. And it's sufficient to be meditated on for a lifetime. Not only are these things building out the silhouette of the prophet to come, they're also showing us what we're supposed to do with this literature. I mean, we're supposed to meditate on it day and night. We're supposed to, this stuff is life to us. I mean, it's telling us what to do with it. And I just think that's incredible. We meditate on it for a lifetime. And more than just showing you a few things, like, hey, look, this is cool. I also want to communicate that these are skills you can develop. There's skills you can develop to read your Old Testament in light of all kinds of context that's there. And there's just so much there to study, so much to glean. It's really incredible. You can get a, uh, your Old Testament scriptures in a Tanakh order and look at it from that perspective. And there'll be so many cool things that you find um, there if you do that. And there's all kinds of different ways to expound upon what you already know about your Old Testament scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, your word to us is so incredible. I can't even believe how you hold it all together in your hand and how you've brought it all to be. It is so precious, Lord. I don't want to take a single word of it for granted. It is amazing. Lord, help us to every day encounter you in it, Lord, to not take it lightly, to hear your voice, Lord. Help us to quiet ourselves as we read, to hear you speaking to us through it, Lord. I just pray for a greater revelation of you for everyone in here, for everyone to encounter you as they read your word, Lord. It is so amazing. And we thank you so much for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.